We're reading John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. A couple of weeks ago, when I was in Tasmania on holidays, I really wanted to do this four-hour walk out to a place called Cape Hoy, basically in the middle of nowhere, a little bit near Port Arthur. But we'd run out of time and, and we had to leave the next day fairly early and we, and we had to pack up our ancient wind-up caravan as well in the morning. You can see it there. So it was looking like I just wasn't going to be able to do this walk. But I'd heard that, that Cape Hoy is spectacular. And so in the end, I persuaded Kathy to let me get up at 5am and do the walk on my own. 
Now, I'd had a bit of a twinge in my calf just um, a couple of days earlier and I'd been limping around Hobart. So both of us, I didn't let on so much, but both of us were unsure that it was a good idea. The next day, the alarm went off at 5am and I surprised myself and got up and I started the walk in the pitch black. I couldn't see anything without the torch. But it didn't matter too much at that point because I was kind of walking just through this scrubby bush down a track and there wasn't that much to see. Until after about an hour, just as it was starting to get a little bit light, I came to a sign that pointed off to Cape Hoy, off from the main track. And the sign said at that point that it was a two-hour return trek from that point at the sign. And looking in the direction where the, the sign pointed, I got my first glimpse of the Cape and the coastline, and it looked spectacular. And it crossed my mind at that point, maybe I should just be satisfied with this. You know, after all, I need to get back and and pack up the the caravan. I'm doing this walk in the middle of nowhere on my own. I hadn't seen another person at all. I've got a sore calf. Maybe reaching this sign and and just getting a taste of, of the glorious view ahead, maybe that should be enough for me. What would you do if you had been in my shoes? You know, would you have gone on or would you have gone back? Just for a bit of fun, tell the person next to you, what would you have done? (laughs) All right. I don't want to hear your answers in case I feel judged. But I pretty quickly, I already knew what I was going to do. I threw caution to the wind and I continued to where the sign pointed. And I thought, I'm here. I might never be here again. I thought, what's the point of getting up at 5am, stumbling in the dark, being scared by possums along the way, just to see a sign and a bit of a view, but to miss out on what lies ahead? So I went on. And very soon, I was actually really, really glad that I did go on. Because the walk was probably one of the highlights, probably the highlight of my trip. Cape Hoy is spectacular. There was not another, not another soul around, as I said. The sun was rising over the ocean. And I was walking down this narrow track with cliffs on either side like you wouldn't believe. Looking down a rugged coastline lit up by the sun with rocky islands and seagulls calling and circling below. And the lookout at the end, I'll show you where it is. You can see it just there. It was breathtaking. Now, I'm not really someone who's afraid of heights, but in this case, I had to kind of muster my courage to look over the lookout, down, down to the muffled, crashing waves far below. And I thought to myself, imagine if I had have stopped at the sign. Imagine if I'd been happy with that. Imagine if if I'd let all my other concerns stop me from following the track to where the sign pointed If I'd done that, I would have missed the glory of what lay ahead. Well, today, as we continue in John's Gospel, we see people who do this with Jesus. People who see the signs of of who he is. People who are impressed by the signs. But they stop there. And in fact, we don't just see people like this in in chapter 2. We see them right across John's gospel. We still see them today. Near the end of of the book of of John, he tells us why he wrote his gospel. He says in, in chapter 20, verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs 
in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Signs are, are like miracles that point to who Jesus is and what he's really on about. And then John tells us why he writes down these particular signs which we have in John's Gospel. He says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's where the signs are pointing to. But John wants more for us than to just see where the signs are pointing to and and to look from afar. He wants us to follow where the signs are pointing. And he tells us where he wants our belief to take us. He writes that by believing you may have life in his name. That's where the signs are pointing. That's where they should take us. Today, as Scott said earlier in in John's Gospel, we get to see Jesus' very first sign. We get a taste of who Jesus really is and what he's really on about. And we get this taste so that we can follow the sign all the way to where it's pointing. But don't you think it's it's a bit of a strange sign, turning water into wine? I mean, don't you think it's, it's a little bit hard to see where it's pointing to? What are we, where are we supposed to go with this sign? You'd think that Jesus would explode onto the scene with a bang, maybe calm a storm or, or, or rise someone from the, from the dead perhaps. But instead, at an insignificant wedding in a tiny little town, in front of a few disciples, a couple of servants and mum, He turns water into wine to save a couple from embarrassment. Isn't that a bit underwhelming? John doesn't think so. Look again at how John summarizes this event in verse 11. He writes, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So let's have a bit of a closer look where this sign is pointing and and where it wants us to go. John sets the scene. It's only about six days into Jesus' ministry here. And the wedding's at at Cana. It's it's a a tiny little place, very close to Nazareth, where Jesus' family had come from. So this is probably the wedding of a family friend or a relative. And partway into this wedding, we're not told why, but the wine runs out. Weddings... They're a big deal in in most cultures. I mean, think about the cost and the time and the planning that goes into weddings these days. On average, according to an an Australian government website from 2013, an Australian wedding costs $36,200. How do you feel about that? I feel terrified. I've got four children. (laughs) I'm already trying to lower their expectations. Listening to Dave thought, uh, talk earlier, I was thinking maybe a, a kind of wedding reception at Bunnings at a sausage sizzle would be quite a good idea. One survey that I read from Bride-to-Be, I don't know what that is, but it said that the average cost of an Australian wedding in 2017 is $65,000. Surely that can't be true. But back in Jesus' time, weddings were a big deal, as big as they are today, if not a bigger deal than they are today. Now nobody then or now, wants their wedding to be remembered as the one where things go wrong. You know, nobody wants their wedding to be remembered as the raw chicken wedding, for example. This wedding was about to be memorable, but for all the bad reasons. Wine, it was critical to weddings back there. If you read across the Old Testament, wine, it it symbolises joy and celebration. And so particularly, it was a part of weddings. But 
the wine at this wedding was, had run out. Now, maybe it was the case that Mary was involved in the catering because she seems to have an inside knowledge that it had run out. And so she tells Jesus in verse 3, she says, they have no more wine. And Jesus says to her in verse 4, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, this might sound a bit rude to us, translated into English like this, but Jesus isn't being rude here. That's not what's going on. He is being politely distant, though. He's not going to let his mother set the agenda for his ministry. And the reason that he gives for that is because his hour has not come. What does he mean by that? His hour has not come. Is he just saying that he's not ready to perform his first sign yet? But if that's the case, then why does he go ahead and and do it? Is the message of this passage kind of like, you know, parents, you might feel your nagging gets nowhere with kids, but actually sometimes it really does get through. Clearly, that's not what's going on. It's not the message. It's not at all what's going on here. John is introducing us to something really important. Right across the book of John, Jesus keeps talking about his hour coming sometime in the future. Until in John 12, 23, Jesus finally says that his hour has come. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what does that glory look like? What sort of miraculous sign is going to happen then? Well, he tells us in the very next verse, Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies... It remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus' hour where he'll be glorified is his death. Now, the cross doesn't look like glory, does it? It looks like humiliation, and it is. But Jesus bringing mercy and justice perfectly together, that's his glory. Jesus not letting evil and death win, that's his glory. Now we'll we'll see more of this, lots more of this as as we travel through John's gospel together. But for now, let's just think about how this helps us understand this part of the Bible that we're looking at right here and now. What Jesus is saying to Mary is that it's not time for him to be publicly glorified. His hour is when he's lifted up on the cross for all the world to see. And through the cross, Jesus is throwing open the way to a a different, greater, more glorious wedding feast that's still to come. Later in this book, John writes about how Jesus is called the bridegroom and how his people are called the bride. And in another book that John writes, Revelation, John calls the great day when Jesus' glory is is completely revealed, he calls that Jesus' wedding day. So in effect, when Jesus is asked to intervene and and save the day for this wedding at Cana, when he's asked to take the spotlight and, and miraculously bring about the great wedding feast, the party, he says, no. Well, actually, he says, not yet. He says, this is not my hour. This is not my day, not my party. But this doesn't stop Mary. She says to the servants in verse 5, do whatever he tells you. And so even though Jesus has said in a way no to Mary, he still helps this young couple and their family out. But notice how he then does it. Not publicly, 
he acts behind the scenes. And he does it so that first his disciples see his glory, but then also through them, we too get to see his glory. He does what he does as a sign that points to that day. So, what exactly does this sign point to? Well, did you see how much wine Jesus makes? I don't know if you calculated it. I put a little PS in the weekly email to see um, if you could calculate how much. But there's, there's six stone jars there, each containing between 20 to 30 gallons. This is why you need a Bible in your own language. I have no idea what a gallon is. But I looked it up and we're talking about 450 to 690 litres of wine, somewhere between those two figures, which is equal to 600 to 920 bottles of wine. It's excessive. This is not saying that they all got hopelessly drunk or anything silly like that. It's a sign that points to the glorious truth that Jesus provides abundantly, excessively. And it's not just about quantity with Jesus. Look at verse 10. The master of the banquet calls over the bridegroom and he says in verse 10, you have saved the best till now. This is about quantity and quality. It's excessive and exceptional. This sign points to what Jesus is really on about. Right up front, the the first sign points to the reality that Jesus himself is the true source of joy and celebration. He's the true life of the party. He's the party maker. Not in some kind of superficial happiness kind of way or shallow partying kind of way. He is the creator of unimaginable joy and true celebration. This sign points to Jesus' plan for the world. Now, we really struggle to see this. I don't, I don't just mean us here, I mean humanity in general. That's why I've called this, this first point, if you only knew Jesus' plan for the party. Because I think we really struggle to know God, Jesus' plan for the party. We find it really hard to see the truth that this sign points out. As you, you might know, in my previous ministry, I worked a lot with uni students. And um, one time at uni, we put up these, these big A3 posters on all the signboards that just was a blank page except for it had the problem with Christianity is dot, dot, dot. And we had pens attached on, on little bits of twine as well. And people just wrote up all their answers all over them, all over the uni. It was fantastic. But you know what the top response was? The problem with Christianity is that it's no fun. Now, maybe that can be true of us Christians, but that can never be true of God. God is the source of life. He's the creator of fun. He knows what makes our hearts sing. He knows what makes us truly content. God not only knows what fills us, he invented these things and he gave us these things and he's still giving us these things. How much more offensive can we get than to think that God's holding back on us, to think that we need to go outside of God to really find life? Sometimes us Christians give people good reason to think that God's a killjoy. Occasionally we talk about God like he's more of a a police officer 
than the true source of life. And, and sometimes we even act like we're his deputies enforcing the rules. But if our, us Christians, if we're acting like that, then we've got God wrong. We've missed this sign. We've missed Jesus' glory. Because right up front, Jesus reveals that he is on about true life, excessive and exceptional. So notice where Jesus pulls out the whip in this this chapter. It's not at this party. It's with the religious in the temple. Now, if you're going to write Jesus off, don't do it because you think he's not on about life. Let's just think a little bit more about this before we move on. How how do we make sure that we don't just stop at the sign here? How do we make sure that we, we keep going where this sign is pointing? In a nutshell, the answer is that we go where the sign is pointing by truly believing Jesus' word, by truly believing that Jesus' heart is to bring us to this great party, to this great wedding feast. You know, at times as I, as I walked down that track to Cape Hoy, I still had moments where I thought, is this going to be worth it? And we can be like that with Jesus. And at those times, we need to remi- remember that the answer is, Yes, stay on the track, trust him, it's going to be worth it. But more than that, this sign points us to see that even now, not just in the future, Jesus' heart is for the party. Even while we wait for the wedding, it's still Jesus' heart. We're not there yet, but still this life right now is all the better for knowing Jesus. We do realize that, don't we? This life now is all the better for knowing Jesus. You know, it's not like we're in prison waiting for our release. Already we get to experience a taste of this party. Think about what we have even now. We know we're forgiven. We don't walk around with the burden of our past guilt and failures on our shoulders. We know we're loved deeply loved, accepted by God. We know we're not dependent on ourselves. We know God's in control. We don't need to worry. We know we're not at the center of this universe. We have no doubt that relationships are the most important thing. Relationship with God, relationships with other people. We know things like that the party's not found in alcohol, That will only let us down. It can't compare to Jesus. We know things like drugs are not the escape we need. We know pornography is enslaving, demeaning to all. We know marriages are worth our energy. We know we're called to live lives being forgiven and forgiving, lives with purpose, lives with hope, lives of sacrificial service. We know all of this because we know Jesus. The good life for us begins even now in this life, because of him, even though the party to come is far, far greater. So we've seen here, Jesus is the party maker. But in this second part of this chapter, we're not going to spend as long on this today. But in this second part of the chapter, we see that Jesus is the party breaker. We see a confronting side of Jesus. Jesus heads from Capernaum all the way down to Jerusalem to the temple at Passover time. And he finds people there selling animals for sacrifices in the, in the temple courts. And so we see what he does in verse 15. 
So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Just imagine this. If, if someone right now jumped up and they started saying, stop turning this place of education into a church. Imagine how confronting it would be. Someone literally jumped up and started trying to shoo you out of church right now, all of us out. And then I, I try and explain to them, look, we hire the facility and surely the money in the end contributes to, to education. And they answer my, my great logic by pulling out a whip. Running backwards and forwards. You're on your own at the po- that point. I'm out that door. <laughs> when you think about it actually happening like that, it's quite intense. It's actually quite distressing. And the illustration that I'm giving here of, of someone cracking a whip... It illustrates the intensity of what's going on here, of what Jesus is doing, but it doesn't really illustrate at all what his heart is here. Because we're not, when we meet here like this, hurting education. It's not like we're locking the kids out so that they can't get an education. It would be uncalled for and really wrong for someone to jump up and do that to us. But what Jesus is doing is different. Jesus is not targeting innocent people who are trying to worship God. Jesus is targeting the businesses who've set up shop in the temple who are hurting what's supposed to be happening in the temple. Jesus breaks up the party of these opportunistic people who are making a profit. But why exactly is Jesus so passionate about this? Well, we see this in verse 17. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The great goal of the temple the great goal of, of God's house is that God might dwell with his people and the purposes of the, of the sacrifices was to deal with people's sins so that God could dwell with them. But the purpose of those who were selling the sacrifices was completely different. Their purpose was all about greed. They're getting in the way of, of people who are trying to connect with God, literally in the way by cluttering it up, but also economically in the way. Jesus' zeal, it might seem a little bit scary here and a little bit hard for us to understand. But if you've got kids, imagine if someone was putting barriers between you and them. Imagine if someone was exploiting them while at the same time making them distant to you. Like imagine a a drug dealer was trying to push his stuff on your kids in your own house. What would you do? I'd be zealous to protect them. I'd drive them out, wouldn't you? Jesus is so passionate about this because he's passionate about God dwelling with his people. Now, the people at this point, they want to see a sign to prove that Jesus has got the authority to do what he's doing. And so listen to the sign that Jesus says that he'll give them. Verse 19. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now, they miss what he's talking about. They think he's talking about the massive temple structure around them. But John makes sure that we don't miss what Jesus is talking about. He wants us to see the sign. And so he says, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Jesus says that the ultimate sign, that he's got the authority 
to rule the place where God meets with his people. The ultimate sign is because he will die and rise again. And if you follow where this sign points, it will show you that Jesus is the place where God meets with his people. He is God dwelling with us. He is God dealing with our sin. He is the true temple. This is Jesus' great passion. He is so zealous for God to dwell with us that he goes to the cross to make it possible. And notice here, his zeal extends against those who would place barriers in the way of others dwelling with God. Did you know Jesus is like this? Did you know that he has this kind of zeal? I think we easily miss that Jesus rages against anything and anyone who would cut off others from having access to God. That's why our second point is, if you only knew Jesus' zeal for God's house, if we only knew it, it would change how we think of him. So here at this point, how do we make sure we don't just stop at the sign again? How do we make sure that we keep on going to where this sign that Jesus is talking about is pointing Now remember, the sign is Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's the ultimate sign that points us. Points us to to repent and believe. That's where that sign always points us. Following this sign, Jesus' death and resurrection, points us to turn away from living for ourselves and turn to living with Jesus as Lord and Saviour. The sign points to Jesus bringing us to God. But this event in the temple and and Jesus' zeal, it, it points to something else as well. It points out that Jesus is not happy for us to place barriers in the way of others believing. Jesus is really not happy for us to cause others to stumble in coming to him. Things that, that do that anger him. We now meet with, with God in Jesus. He's the temple. And so he's not happy for us to put barriers before others seeing who Jesus really is. Now think about some of the barriers that we could put in the way of others. We could do it on a church-wide level. We could do it on an individual level. We could block people seeing Jesus by being nothing like him at all. By caring about nothing like what he cares about. We could block people from seeing Jesus by being hypocrites. We could be more on about our church or ourselves than Jesus and so place barriers in them seeing Jesus for who he really is. I knew a a doctor in a small country town once and I was there doing a prac when I was a uni student and the pharmacist in town couldn't stand this doctor. He was proud, he was rude, you kind of shuddered when you had to call him on the phone. And he was very, very well known for being a Christian. That's tragic. Are there things in our lives that are putting up barriers to others seeing Jesus for who he really is? Are there things in your life? If there are, Jesus is zealous for you to deal with them. Because those kind of parties, they're the ones that Jesus is quite happy to bust up. Of course... It might be on your mind, one of the horrible, awful barriers on the minds of many at the moment is the child abuse abuse 
that church has overlooked and even covered up. You know that nobody hates child abuse in the church like Jesus, don't you? I hate it. I loathe it. I'm angry by it. Every time we do a child-safe environment kind of course every three years, I'm angry, I'm disgusted, as I'm sure you are too. But nobody rages against it like Jesus. So today, we've heard about two signs. One that Jesus did at the start of his ministry, turning water into wine. One that he would do at the end of his ministry, his death and his resurrection. But like I said before, people saw the signs that he was doing and they believed in him as being someone significant, maybe even the Messiah. But it's like they're standing at the sign, admiring from afar. There's something stopping them going where the signs are pointing them. Their belief, it doesn't translate into committing to the path and following Jesus. And Jesus knows this. Look at verse 23. Many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. People believe Jesus, but he doesn't entrust himself to them. He doesn't trust them. Now, at first, this seems really one-sided. It's like, it seems like Jesus is holding out on people unfairly. They're doing their bit. He's not doing his bit. But look at the reason in verse 25. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Jesus has an insight that we just don't have. And what he sees is that we're not trustworthy. We find this really hard to accept. And that's why our last point is, if you only knew Jesus' insight into humanity. If you know someone who's, who's a drug addict and, and they're still a drug addict, and they're a slave to their addiction, then you know that it's foolish to trust yourself to them. Jesus sees people. He, he even sees his disciples and he sees what's in them. He sees that these are people who are slaves to sin. And he sees that he can't trust them with himself. Now, it doesn't mean that he doesn't love them. It doesn't mean he's not passionate about them. But it does mean Jesus faces a lonely road. He alone amongst humanity must act to save humanity. No human can help him in his mission. He entrusts himself to his Father and he acts alone, gives himself up for the sake of humanity. This insight into our hearts that that Jesus has here is at first disturbing, but then if we see who Jesus really is, it's reassuring. You know, Jesus sees everything about us. He knows it all. He sees the hypocrisy. He knows the gossip, the lust, the complaining, the ingratitude, the greed, the selfishness. It's disturbing when you think about what Jesus knows about us. But, It's reassuring that he knows it all and yet he gives himself for me nonetheless. You know, until you're disturbed by what Jesus sees in you, you won't go where the signs are pointing. You'll only watch from afar. Until you're disturbed by what Jesus sees in you, you won't go where the signs are pointing. You'll think it's nice that Jesus died for people. You'll think the party looks interesting. Him wanting to dwell with us sounds promising. But that's standing at the sign and not going where it's pointing. C.S. Lewis said, 
Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. But until you reach that point where you see who Jesus is and you believe who Jesus says you are, not to be trusted, in need of a saviour, a sinner facing eternal death, until that point that you believe Jesus, you won't actually follow the signs to where Jesus is pointing. Even the disciples in this gospel, they're struggling to follow the signs to where they're pointing. As we heard, it's not till after the resurrection that they really believe Scripture and Jesus' word. But follow the signs. Jesus didn't die for no reason. He died because there's no other way for that great party to happen. There's no other way for our sin to be dealt with so that God can dwell with us. There's no other way that we can be made trustworthy. As I finish, there was a question this week in the John studies from our communities groups that struck me. It said, if someone researching Jesus Christ spent a week looking at your life, would they get a picture of the one you follow similar to the picture of Jesus that John has given us here? That's worth thinking about this week. From looking at your life, would people conclude that you think Jesus is the great party maker? That joy and celebration is Jesus' heart and plan for you? Would they conclude from looking at your life that you think Jesus is zealous to remove every barrier to other people coming to him? That he's willing to break up unholy parties in your life to remove those barriers? Would they conclude from looking at your life that you think that Jesus knows best, has an insight that you don't have, that he sees what you don't, that he knows your untrustworthiness, but he loves you and saves you nonetheless? Would they see from looking at your life that you're standing at the sign, looking on from afar? Or would they see that you've committed to the track and following it to the glorious places where Jesus leads us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus and we ask that by your Holy Spirit you would open our eyes, our minds, our hearts to see who Jesus really is. To see his heart for us, for this world. That he so longs to bring about the great wedding feast. True joy, true celebration as we dwell with you face to face. That he would go to the cross Lord, help us to see his zeal and passion that he has to deal with our sin so that we could dwell with you forever. Lord, his zeal and passion to remove every barrier. And Lord, please help us never to be religious hypocrites who place barriers in the ways of others coming to you through Jesus. Lord, help us to be humble, to see that we really are not trustworthy on our own that we desperately need Jesus' mission, his saving work at the cross, so that we can be a part of the great party that he has planned. Lord, help us to be a people that know even now the joy and celebration that is to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.